it's a consensus government, you know, and it's much different in your in the manner of how you handle it. And consensus government is, you know, if you really believe in consensus government, you have to really work at it. You know, it it is a great idea. It's very much connected with our own cultural way of um, consensus, where the the, the majority decision uh, goes. The role for Inuit women in society and Inuit men that um, sometimes have been very different. And so having um, the diversity of perspectives um, that are all in leadership roles makes for better decisions. So um, that's another reason to really push for uh, Inuit women in leadership. Welcome back. It's Kate Graham here, and this is No Second Chances, a Canada 2020 project about women in Canada's most senior political roles. It's one thing to read about a political leader in a book, or to read their quotes in the news. But it's another thing entirely to hear the voices of the people with lived experience, to hear a story in the voice of the person who actually lived it. We hope this podcast has given you a chance to get to know Canada's female first ministers on a more personal level. You've heard them laugh, you've heard them cry, and you've heard them talk about all of the highs and the lows of a life in politics. But you probably feel like you've gotten to know some of them better than the others. And there are a few that you haven't heard much from yet at all. So I've got some good news for you. We have some new voices to share. Last week, we released a remarkable interview with Pauline Marois, former Premier of Quebec. This episode and interview was entirely in French but an English transcription will be made available online in the coming weeks. And today? Well, today we're headed north. Canada has only had 12 women reach our peak political post. But frankly, two of their stories are not like the others. Nellie Cornier and Eva Eriak are both Inuit women. They led in territories with nonpartisan consensus governments. It's a different context. You've heard a bit from both women, but some of their story didn't fit neatly with the rest of the series. So today, they take the center stage. So let's head north, where we'll find some remarkable women leaders and a unique style of leadership. Like any good story, we start today at the beginning, first heading to a small northern community called Arctic Bay. And when I say northern, I mean northern. We're talking the northern tip of Baffin Island. I was born in a camp, in, a, in, a, in an outside camp, before uh, outside of Arctic Bay. Uh, before Arctic Bay uh, was populated. And uh, my parents and myself and uh, uh, my older sister moved into Arctic Bay when I was about five, where we moved in with our with my grandfather's house, one-room house. And it was uh, only second Inuit home uh, that was there. That's Eve Eriak born in January of 1955, who would grow up to become the first and only female premier of a territory that wouldn't exist for another 44 years, Nunavut. Arctic Bay was very small, and the the families that were in the outlying camps uh, moved in, um, mainly because they were asked to move back, uh, I mean, to move into the centre in Arctic Bay, um, so that their children can go to school and so on. Uh, 
So they left their livelihood out there where they were completely self-sufficient uh, by hunting and, uh, and, you know, living the way they've always lived. Uh, so throughout the years as I was growing up, I, I witnessed the, the community growing. And it was very evident when the community was so very small, the little things that are happening done by people, I mean, making a, a little difference. It didn't take Eva long before she, too, was making a difference in that community. There was no recreational activities organized as I felt they should be. So one day I made a suggestion uh, that we should shovel off the, the ice, because we live right next to the, to the ocean in Arctic Bay, you know, shovel off the area where people can skate and, and enjoy outdoors. So um, I, I was asked to approach the Hamlet Council, uh, and I went in as a delegate and requested that uh, um, with uh, one of those machines, uh, snow plowing machines, if, they, if a piece of the area for skating could be cleared. Council said no, but that wasn't the end of the story. One of the, the, the Hamlet employees was so understanding, who was the heavy equipment operator. He just went out to the ice and did it anyway. He knew how, how important it was, so we had, <laughs> we had our skating rink. And it sparked the beginning of what would become a life full of community involvement for Eva. She joined committees, boards, and served on Hamlet Council. So that really helped me to kind of take these as stepping stones to uh, more of, um, in, the, in the more uh, political arena and uh, when I was asked uh, if I was interested in being um, being a, a, a candidate for a member of a legislature I I have thought about it before I so <laughs> when I was asked uh, you know if I if I would be interested in uh, uh, in, in that uh, arena I said yes and uh, 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 of course, uh, approached my immediate family, and uh, I was a single parent then, so that had to uh, be uh, considered as well. So, um, and uh, yeah, I, I I got in. She sure did. And the first order of business for Eva and her fellow members of the territorial legislature was to select a premier, and you guessed it, she won. But before we get into politics. Let's back up. Let's visit another small northern hamlet about 2,000 kilometers away, a Klavik in the Northwest Territories. You know, living in the Arctic at my age, you know, it was entirely different. Basically grew up on, on a trap line, coming into town every now and then. On the off-season, you know, of, of uh, harvesting. And... Uh, even as a young child, you know, when you came to town, it was all expected of you to participate in all the gatherings that were going on. So you're always hooked into the community. If you've been tuning in to No Second Chances, you'll recognize the voice of Nellie Cornier, who would later become the premier of the Northwest Territories. Because you were expected to take part in, in, your, in your community and participate, and you were taught to listen, 
to what was going on, and there was a lot of changes very quickly. And so listening to the elders or the older people was a prerequisite. And it was very important that you, as an individual, have to look after the elders and do what they say. So you were always around people who were making things happen. It may not be political or great in some people's eyes, but it was survival. So having to live in a survival society, you get taught a lot. You can hear similar themes in Eva and Nellie's stories about growing up in a small northern indigenous community. They're tight-knit places where people look out for each other, where people understand that everyone has to pitch in in order to survive. Your motivation for doing things are almost programmed for you. You know, it was not something you sought out or uh, it was an evolutionary need to do something about something. And so it was not a plan or it wasn't uh, um, a desire to be a politician or to be in, in the system, as you call it. It was never like that at all. You know, it was a need to do something. The oil and gas industry was quickly moving into the north and making big changes to these small but established communities. There were three people in Ottawa that we found that were really just giving the permits out. That's all there was to it, without any really plan. Um... Um, with the moving of the community and the oil and gas industry coming in, and all of a sudden, discussion about ownership, land, who should do things what way, who was in charge, how were decisions made, was really, really absolutely taken away from the people who were totally self-sustaining. Mm -hmm. Hunting and trapping was our economic base. How do we, how are we going to live? You know, so... And we had learned, well, you know, the best way we can do it is try to grab a hold of, of our control over the land, because that was the most important. That's where everything came from. You know, our, our, our life cycle was always around harvesting. She got involved in land claims, taking on larger and larger advocacy roles. It got to the point that as we were negotiating, um... They would throw, the territorial government would throw all kinds of concerns. Well, what about this? You know, it might be something that was, well, what if this happened 40 years from now? What about this? You know, most of them couldn't even think beyond this year, you know. And so there was a lot of spanners put in the discussions. And um, so it was determined somebody had to go into the legislative assembly, you know, to to just an educational, it was not a fight, but an educational thing. So when something came up, then there would be an explanation for it. Not a fight, but an explanation for it. So it was, I guess it, well, now you better try it, you know. So that's how I got to be in, in, in an elected position at the legislative or the government of the Northwest Territories. It was 1983. By 1991... Nellie was the premier of the Northwest Territories, making her only the second woman in Canada to become a first minister. It's a consensus government, yeah. you know, and it's much different in, your, in the manner of how you handle it. And consensus government is, you know, if you really believe in consensus government, you have to really work at it. Consensus government? If you live in the provinces like me, 
This is probably an unfamiliar concept. I know when I think about our political system, the word consensus doesn't exactly come to mind. So what is it? How does it work? Well, here's how Eva Eriak describes it. There's only two territories in Canada that are in, in the model of consensus government, Nunavut and Northwest Territories. Consensus government, uh, you get elected, and first uh, the elected members, all of the elected members will choose their speaker first amongst the peers, and then the premier will be elected by its peers. Um, there will be a secret ballot, and... Um, and the premier will be chosen. After that, same sort of thing happens with people who are interested in becoming ministers in, in the cabinet. And they are elect, selected, well, elected by the peers through secret ballot. And um, there is a perpetual minority in the cabinet, and the regular members are always in larger numbers. So in that respect, I, I feel that that can be uh, an interesting situation <laughs> where um, uh, if the regular members do not agree with what the cabinet is proposing, then they have the power. If, if they can get enough uh, support within their peers, then you know, it's, it's easy for them to overturn the cabinet decision. I have to say, I was pretty curious to learn more about this whole consensus government thing. Does it lead to better decisions or more collaborative politics? Is it more conducive to women's leadership? I thought it might be helpful to hear a few more perspectives on this. Natan Obed is the elected president of Canada's National Representational Inuit Organization. He's worked directly with both Nellie Cornier and Eve Eriak and knows well what consensus government is all about. Consensus government, ideally, creates more accountability and also more uh, more opportunities to work together on key initiatives that the government needs to solve, uh, especially considering the way in which the cabinet and the premier are never the majority within the system, that the regular members hold the balance of power if they vote together in a block. That is something that... Um, is very different than the way that party politics operates in the South. I asked Natan, so what does that mean in practice? Does it produce more collaborative decision-making? Or does it lead to instability, where the members can overturn the premier and ministers whenever they want? The challenge within consensus models is holding those consensus models together because uh, you don't have a governing party with... Um, a party base and a party platform per se. The, the government creates its own mandate and then the cabinet ministers and the, the premier work together to fulfill it. But there is limited incentive in relation to party politics for cabinet ministers to work hand in hand with the premier. And then uh, on the other side of the table, the regular members of a, a legislative assembly uh, outnumber the cabinet. So at any time, uh, the the cabinet and the premier are at risk of, of being um, blocked on their mandate based on the, um, the way in which regular members uh, 
hold the, the sway of power, which in theory then allows for decisions to be made which are, um, as the model suggests, more of a consensus that, that you would have to reach out to regular members and get support that you couldn't just uh, push through legislation or major planks in, in your platform because you felt like it. So that I, I think in in the way in which consensus governments operate, um, it creates some ideal scenarios for individuals to overcome barriers to becoming premiers or to becoming key leaders in government that party politics might put up barriers for. But it, it also has challenges. And the, uh, if you consider you're three years into a four-year mandate and one of your cabinet ministers wants to be premier, there's very little incentive for that cabinet minister to, to prop up the success of a premier, um, even though that person is in cabinet, uh, because they might want to to angle themselves for a run at the premiership in the next election. So it it creates some, some strange scenarios, but I think all governance models do. So does consensus government provide a better opportunity for women to lead? These are, are very different ways of, of, of governing. I think for gender and the way gender plays, uh, not having party politics allows for individuals to have more of a chance when it comes to leadership reviews than um, than if you're in a traditional market where you have a party leader who um, has to conform to a whole host of different check marks about who they are, what their education is, what their background is, in order to to be quote unquote electable. Um, so within consensus government, I think there's no, more of a dynamic approach to who are cabinet ministers and who are, uh, in the end, premiers. For Natan, looking at the systems of governance and the representation of women is a conversation well worth having. I hope that we can continue to have these conversations, that if naturally we are not creating an environment which recognizes and supports the equality of Inuit women within a political um, sphere, that we then have to figure out how to change systems to ensure that reality. Because shrugging our shoulders and saying, well, that's just how people vote, uh, uh, it allows for systemic challenges that you know, women face to persist. I don't think that we should uh, shy away from bold ideas about how to ensure that there are more people like Nelly Cornway or Eva Aliak, who earn the, uh, the right to lead and don't have barriers put in their way. Consensus government is definitely a bold idea, but could this work in the South? I spoke with Dr. Graham White about this. He spent his career as a political scientist at the University of Toronto, and he's a leading expert on consensus government in Canada. He's also written extensively about women leaders in territorial governments, including a recent chapter this year about Nellie Cornier. First time I went to Yellowknife was in 1988 uh, to figure out what this consensus government thing was. Um, I, it was only to be a very short-term thing, but I realized this is that was the most interesting political situation I'd ever seen. 
we are talking about Westminster parliamentary systems where uh, you have a premier, cabinet, uh, most of the trappings of British parliamentary stuff, three readings, speaker, uh, all that other good stuff, confidence votes and so on, uh, but no political parties. Now, uh, a lot of people find that um, strange to incomprehensible and just assume you have to have political parties in a British parliamentary system, but it ain't necessarily so. I ask Graham, so is consensus government basically like a city council then? In some senses, yes, but don't forget that city councils do not have confidence conventions. The British parliamentary system has, uh, the you get to be the government, you have a premier and ministers, you get to be the government because you win the confidence votes. And city councils don't have anything remotely like that. So here's the million dollar question. Is consensus government a model where we see a stronger presence of women as leaders? You would think, given that we're talking about, and and some of this was precipitated by the fact that there have been two Indigenous women premiers in the two consensus governments, uh, that that would be an indication that consensus government is more amenable to women's leadership roles than, than otherwise. I've read enough of Graham's work to know what the data actually shows that even though two prominent women have been in top positions, women are overwhelmingly underrepresented in political roles in the territories, at times hitting as low as 5%. So the the question then becomes, well, is this inherent in consensus government? Um, And I'm not sure it has more to do with the nature of northern slash indigenous societies. To the extent that a party system, in a party system, the political parties make efforts to recruit and nurture and support women candidates, uh, that is definitely not happening in consensus government. And there are um, uh, NGOs and individual people who try to promote women as candidates, but it's not nearly the same as if a political party takes supporting women seriously, that's a big boost. And that is just not present in the North. So consensus government doesn't necessarily solve the problem of the underrepresentation of women in politics. It's blindingly obvious, but nonetheless important, that uh, Canadians of, of uh, all backgrounds recognize and understand that there are very capable women leader, Indigenous women leaders out there, uh, and two in particular have very impressive track records. Uh, and that um, it's politics throughout the country remains primarily a male preserve, and that remains the case uh, in the territories as well. Now let's get back to Nellie and Eva. What's it like to be a woman, and the premier no less, in a consensus model? Well, here was Nellie's take. It's a consensus government, yeah. you know, and it's much different in, your, in the manner of how you handle it. You know, I was an ordinary MLA the first four years. I didn't want to be anything else. Then after that, I got on cabinet positions, and and it was all so busy learning. And then still, but I, I'm a very, very um, dedicated to home base. You know, I never, I would never not neglect the communities, never neglect the people, and. Um, I, I always touching ground with them, you know, and 
always with them, so there was nothing. I didn't evolve to a higher status where I only mixed with the the Gucci people of the world or whatever you want to call it. I never did have to worry about that. People will tell me, you know, yeah, we made a really great gain today. And I'd say, well, gee, just that's what's supposed to happen, you know. So what's a big deal? What's a big deal about it, really? You know, that's and um, but no, I I really believe sincerely that if you want to succeed, when you determine to do something, you get the best team you can around you. Does a consensus government make it easier to do that, or does it create instability for the premier? Since there's no party of people who have your back, here's Eva's perspective. If As a premier, and that happened a couple of times, as a premier, um, I I may individually not be uh, approval, uh, approving of what the issue is at hand to be uh, carried out or voted on by the cabinet. Uh, But because of the consensus and the way I I operated, uh, whatever was the majority would have to go. Even me as a premier did not so much agree with it. I would try my best to explain why, but, you know, it's the majority that would make the decisions. Um, so it, uh, it, it has its pros and cons. Uh, when I went on speaking engagements and explained this consensus-style government, People in the South, a lot of them would say, wow, that's how everything should be. Um, you know, it, it is a great idea. It's very much connected with our own cultural way of um, consist, consensus, where the, 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 the majority decision uh, goes. So Eva, how can we see more women lead in consensus models or otherwise? There are many women who are ready, and I know a lot of them personally. That's how I can gauge. That's why I can say they are ready. (laughs) And a few of them actually have said that when I talked to them. I said, yeah, you know, uh, I'm just waiting for the right opportunity. But anyway, it's it's the issues that, uh, again, uh, the the younger um, people who still have a lot to consider um, their children's education, they're looking after the family and, and, and their immediate family members and so on, and lack of daycares and a support system. Many of, we have a lot of single mothers as well. I know, I know how hard that is because I, I went through it myself when I was getting into politics. And um, having to rely on your own uh, children to look after the youngest one and things like that, uh, you you feel it in your heart and you feel that this is something that I should not have to feel. But at the same time, I, I put myself in the position that I strongly believe in. So together uh, with the family, I think we can do it, you know, type thing. So... Um, and just encouragement and um, recognition of their strength and uh, their affirmation of the fact that they're ready at heart and mind. Uh, they, we need to encourage them a lot. 
um, and the more they hear it, uh, you know, it's it's it gets easier to say, yes, I can. Um, it's getting there. That's even though you know you can. It's getting to a point where you can say out loud, yes, I can, is a bit tougher. Canada is a very big country, rich in diversity. But most of our political discourse focuses on the South, and really the 90% of Canadians who live within 100 miles of the U.S. border. But Canada is more than that. Just as our people are diverse, so are our politics and our political systems. Only 12 women have ever served in our most senior role, and two of them are remarkable Indigenous women who led in a very different context from the others. Today you heard Nellie Cornier and Eva Eriak talk about a reality where contributing to your community is literally a matter of survival. We also learned about consensus government, including the pros and the cons, with thanks to Natano Bed and Graham White for their insights. And importantly, we probed the experience of women as leaders within Canada's territories. And you know what? We've really only scratched the surface on these topics. But for me, it's a good reminder of how diverse our land and our politics really are, and how much there is to be learned through listening to leaders who've lived a different reality. Learning about the leadership of Indigenous women is nothing short of inspiring. We'll give the final reflection today to Natano Bed, who framed the importance of this conversation in such a powerful way. There are still uh, huge challenges that Inuit women face when uh, um, entering into the political sphere, and that's not to discredit it, but for groundbreakers like Nellie Cornway and also for Eva Ayat, it still was, I think, really important. Um, you know, those are the conversations we need to still have. And with the National Inquiry on Murdered Missing Indigenous Women and Girls, uh, and a lot of the, the, the conversations or the, the testimony from Inuit women, you know that representation and leadership in politics is still something that is a, a key indicator of then Inuit women's and girls' rights being respected as well. So having Inuit women involved in politics is a, a huge step towards fulfilling the place that, uh, that gender plays within politics. Because no doubt, uh, there's a different perspective and one that uh, that brings to the table uh, different perspectives and positions that then help bring the entirety of our society forward. Thanks for tuning in today. We'll pick things up again next week with an important conversation from someone who knows the No Second Chances story well, and you haven't heard from her yet. I'm sure it won't take you long to figure out who it is and that you won't want to miss it. Thanks for being a part of this conversation. As always, you can subscribe and learn more about this project at nosecondchances.ca. And Eva Ariak says it better than I can. Thank you very much. Coming up on No Second Chances. It is a job that requires you to sort of leap into the breach and put yourself into the public eye and, and just cross your fingers and hope that it, there's no blowback against you or the people that, that you love. It's an unpredictable line of work. 
women are either pushed out or they choose not to ascend to uh, or seek to ascend to positions of leadership because that's not the way they want to do things. No Second Chances is a special project of Canada 2020, written and hosted by me, Kate Graham. It's produced by Sarah Turnbull and I, and recorded and edited by Aaron Reynolds. Our music is composed and performed by Meredith Yeyanos. Mira Ahmad is the Communications and Operations Manager at Canada 2020, which is led by Executive Director Alex Patterson. And this project would not be possible without the generous support of MasterCard. Daima. Daima means that's it. Hey there, it's Sarah from the 2020 Network, brought to you by Interac. If you like what you heard today and want to find out more about what Canada 2020 is up to, add yourself to our mailing list. That's where we share the details of our upcoming events and initiatives. And if you haven't yet already, subscribe to the 2020 Network. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. We've got four awesome shows suited to everyone's unique tastes. To give you a sense of that, over the last few weeks, we've heard from a blockbuster actor, a famous political commentator, a ballet dancer, an academic, an author, a journalist. Yeah, you get the gist. So go now, subscribe, rate, and review. I'll catch you back here next time.